story is told of the traveling salesman. It had been a long day. He had finished a final sale, going back to the airport, dressed in his top coat, his long overcoat. It was a, a dreary, rainy day, and he was had returned, checked in for the flight. In this particular airport was a fantastic smell, the smell of fresh chocolate chip cookies being made. Being sold by one of the vendors, he decided to treat himself after a hard day's work. So he went in, got in line, got that bag of cookies. He went down, sat by where his gate was, and awaited for his flight to be called. He took off his hat. He laid down his top coat and his briefcase. He noticed that there was a woman sitting next to him. And uh, as he was putting down his briefcase, she reached over and put her hand into the bag of cookies. thought this was kind of strange, but he's a nice guy. thought, well, I'll do whatever it, I'm a nice guy, I'll let her have these cookies if she's so hungry. I really wish she would have asked me first, but it's all right. So he went ahead and helped himself and got a couple of cookies, and uh, then she did it again. And it wasn't like this time she was being sneaky about it. She just did it right in front of him. And so he noticed that she had grabbed a couple of cookies, and he kind of gave her a look, and she kind of gave him a look. And he went ahead and grabbed three more cookies. He said, I don't know what this woman's problem is, but I'm at least going to enjoy some chocolate chip cookies. Well, this uh, repeated back and forth. She'd grab a couple, he'd grab a couple, each out of the same bag. He said, man, this woman has... Some gall to be able to eat my cookies. Well, he reached in and he figured out he had the last cookie. So he took that cookie and he put it in his mouth and he ate it right in front of her. And he smiled real big as he did it. And that woman, she looked like a wet cat. She was about to come undone. She grabbed the bag. She took the remaining crumbs and she poured them in her mouth. And then... The gate agent called the lady's flight. And so she grabbed her stuff and she stomped off and gave him a look. He thought, man, that was the strangest experience of my life. He sat there and he waited. And then a few minutes later, his flight was called. So he grabbed his hat and he grabbed his coat and he grabbed his briefcase. And there underneath his briefcase was his bag of cookies. <laughs> you have to be very careful about what you assume. This morning we are talking about togetherness. And that topic really is talking about the subject of unity within the body of Christ. But that's a difficult topic because sometimes we assume things that ought not be true about unity. There's the right type of unity. There's the wrong type of unity. We have to make sure we're on the same page when it comes to unity. So before we jump into the text itself, we've got to address a couple of commonly held assumptions as we talk about the subject. First is, Christ supersedes all talk of unity. Now, if you are here this morning, I appreciate that you want to follow along in your little handout. I'm thrilled that you look up at the PowerPoint, but those things will not change your life like the Word of God. So open your Bibles, get out your iPhone, get out your iPad, and read the text, and understand what God is trying to convey. 
In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 30 through 38, here Jesus is talking to his followers. Now, Jesus, when we say that word, it's sort of like the word unity. We sort of come into Jesus with some assumptions. And the picture that we most commonly get of Jesus is this mild-mannered guy who had really great hair, who loved hanging around with uh, children and sheep and lambs. But Jesus, Jesus was a man's man. And that meant sometimes he had to make a stand for things. He had to take a principled stand. And that means that Jesus was not always a popular guy. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 38, here he's talking to his disciples. He's getting ready to send them out specifically on mission work. And he says, verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the enemies of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you understand that an initial reading, it kind of seems like Jesus was not a guy who was too concerned with family values. Now, that, that doesn't seem to register in our minds like something that Jesus would say. Didn't Jesus want children to obey their parents? Didn't Jesus want parents to love their children? Absolutely he did. What he's talking here is about priorities. In the religious world in particular, it's very easy for us to get caught up in this idea that we, be, we should be unified for unity's sake. But we can be unified about, around the wrong things, around the wrong causes. Unity can go in the wrong direction. And so when we talk about unity, we have to start first, as we did in this series, talking about Christ as Lord. He supersedes all talk of unity. When you choose to follow Christ, you are going to put yourself under a Lord who will not go in the same direction that the crowd does. Robert Frost said, two paths diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That may be well and good for Robert Frost. That is not always the case for a disciple of Jesus Christ. When two paths diverge in a wood or in your life, you follow Jesus. You do not follow any other path than the, other than the one he took. There was a president of ours who famously said he was a uniter and not a divider. And I think some people, when they think about Jesus, they think he's always a uniter. And in some cases he was. But when people choose to not make him Lord... He was an absolute divider. Was Jesus a uniter or a divider? The answer to that is yes. Unity, you see, is impossible then when Christ is not Lord, when his word is not supreme, when his spirit is not in control, when sin refuses to be repented of or when false teaching steps in. But... When his word reigns supreme, when his spirit reigns among his people, then unity becomes the utmost importance. 
For those of us who believe and follow the risen Lord, unity becomes something that is of absolute importance. Once we are under the headship of Jesus in Christ, unity is greater than us. What Jesus wants and what his kingdom needs is greater than your opinions. It's greater than your feelings. It's greater than your styles, your wishes, or your wants. When the problem concerns you, the first thing a follower of Jesus Christ does is put himself or herself directly on the altar. You remember in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus was praying in the garden. I remember this very clearly in my grandparents' home. Uh, when we would go over to their home, we often stayed in the guest room. And in the guest room was this picture of Jesus praying at Gethsemane. And I'm sure you have the picture in your mind. And it was very dark. In fact, the whole picture is dark. You have to really study it. The only light there is is, of course, Christ. Now, as a youngster with not really a lot of Bible education, that picture looked very dark to me. And when you turn to Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, you get the full context of that picture. And the picture is this. Jesus is at the last night of his life. He is about to endure some of the most horrific beatings and torture that any human being will ever face. But that's not the hard part of the cross. Listen to me now. It's not the physical sufferings of Jesus that were the hardest for Jesus. He was the almighty. He was the omnipotent. He had the strength to take all that as hard as it was. What the hard part about Jesus' suffering, the hard part about the cross, was the separation that he would have between he and his father for the first time in all eternity. And he didn't want to endure it. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Let it pass. But not my will, but yours be done. When you choose to follow Jesus, you understand you're taking the attitude of Jesus. That says, I am not going to live for what I want anymore. Not my will, but yours. And your will alone be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Unity is greater than you. And so if spiritual immaturity is a problem, the answer is to grow up in Christ. Why does it matter? If unity is so hard, and if we really must unify under the lordship of Christ, why even bother? Psalm chapter 133, verse 1. Psalm 133, verse 1. It's not up there, it's not up here, it's in the book. The psalmist says, behold, my brothers, how pleasant it is. In fact, one version says how good and pleasant it is when brothers, when the people of God dwell together in unity. Unity is important, number one, because unity is good. If you've ever gone to a good teen camp or a wonderful family camp, you have the same experience that Jesus, uh, Peter did at the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember, he was transfigured and he saw Moses and Elijah. And as they witnessed that eternal moment on the mountaintop, Peter said, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up some shelters and just not leave. I've had that experience at many camps and many retreats over the years. When we experience true unity, unity that's not tangible, but that is absolutely palpable, we know how good it is. We know how pleasing it is. Number two, unity is important because it draws people. In John chapter 12, verse 32, 
John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, I know we're just a few weeks out, six weeks or so from the women's conference. I am always impressed about the crowd of women that that attracts. And I wonder why that is, because there's lots of options for women for conferences and things like that. I think the key to it is when you look at the leadership team, when you look at the servants who are serving in it, what do they do? They exalt Christ above themselves. They lift Christ up. When Christ is lifted up, people are attracted. That's just the natural result of unity. Number three, unity allows great good to be done. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 6, the Lord said, If as one people with one language they have begun to do this, and he's in the context talking about the Tower of Babel, if as one people with one language they have begun to do this thing, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Unity allows a great deal of good to be done. My example for this is Know Your Bible. Know Your Bible is a beautiful ministry that has, it's become now a generational ministry. You say, well, you're bringing it up because you're on the panel. Listen to me now. Know Your Bible, for Steve and I are 0.01% of the good that happens in Know Your Bible. The exceptional amount of good comes from the, the people who aren't in here right now who are taking phone calls. The people came early this morning to, to grade correspondence courses and communicate with people who want to know about the Bible. The, the great good that has been done comes not from the people on the television, but from God's people working together as one. When God's people do such great, great things can happen. I hesitate to use Know Your Bible because it's a 30-year-old example. And I long for the day when God will do something new again. When God will pull his people together again and raise up a new generation. I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I want us to understand if we don't have unity, it will not ever happen. Number four. And this is probably the most important reason it mattered to Jesus. We talked about Luke chapter 22 where Jesus was praying. But if you will turn over to John chapter 17 verses 20 and 20 through 23, you're going to read as the apostle John recorded what happened on those last nights. Uh, the last night within the garden, excuse me. Jesus, if you can imagine your last night on this earth, what would that be like if you could somehow knew, if God would tell you the exact day which you would leave this earth, what would your last night be like? Specifically, what would that last prayer contain? My guess is it would not hear any repeated phrases that mean nothing. My guess is it would not be empty words and empty air passing over your lips. My guess is if that was the last prayer of your last night on earth, it would be about the most important things that mattered to you. And that is exactly what Jesus' prayer was. Now, you're with me in John chapter 17? It's not going to be up there. 
If you're in your Bibles, John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, he says, my prayer, listen to this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, just as a hint here, that is us. That all of them may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed that last prayer on his last night on earth because it was so important to him because unity is hard. It is difficult. You say, man, he is fired up this morning. What in the world got under his skin? I tell you, there's no problem that I know of. I just need you to know that God's people at Northside have had a great legacy of unity. But if we do not maintain that, if we do not maintain eternal diligence... The fleshly nature will seep in. The sinful nature will work its way like yeast working through dough. And we will find ourselves dividing over small things of no consequence until one day we're dividing over large things that matter eternally. And that's why Jesus prayed about it, because it's hard. It's not easy to do. When you get 700-ish people in one room, it's hard to agree on how to do things and why to do things and the order to do things in. And you're talking just about one hour of a week, let alone all the other hours in a week that we have to work together. So... Jesus prayed for it because of selfishness, because of sin, because of spiritual immaturity. These days, within our culture, it is tremendously tempting to walk away. For a generation that was a little more brand loyal, maybe not so much, but for a generation that has lots of choices and lots of options, trust me when I say that when unity is not prevailing, it is so easy to say, you know, I got a lot of other options. You know what? I got a lot of other places I could go. You know what? I could just go no place. Is it any wonder why you see that happening in our world today? Unity is difficult. It is not easy. Now, now think through me with me just for a second here. What are the what are the things which attracted people to Jesus? What was it about Jesus that attracted people? I think I'm going to boil it down to three. You might have your own list. I think number one, of course, was the miracles that the good that he did. And I don't think it was he just did a miracle and walked on. I think Jesus was a person who had compassion, who loved people genuinely, sincerely. And when he went to Lazarus' funeral, he broke down because he loved people. But he did good where he could and where he was called to. The second thing that I believe that attracted people to Jesus was the authority with which he taught the word. People remarked, we have never heard a man teach as he teaches. Oh, I would have loved to have sit at the feet of the rabbi and to hear him break forth the bread which he wrote 
to hear the author explain his own book and to help us understand fully and completely. But the third thing I think which he did, which was most attractive, is that he united people who followed Jesus. The prostitutes and the sinners, yes. Who followed Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, yes. Who followed Jesus? Who did Jesus call? Did Jesus call the zealot who was absolutely, violently, vehemently opposed to the, over, uh, to, to the rule of Rome? Yes. Did he call forth the tax collector who would sit in a tax collect and collect money for the Roman government? Yes. Jesus brought different people together, and it could only be explained by his lordship. And even he knew it was hard. But the most, uh, we've got to stop and talk here about unity within the church. Unity, in some places, can be as harmful as it is helpful. Unity can be destructive more than constructive in certain contexts. Think about it. A church can be absolutely united in spiritual immaturity. A church can be united in immorality. A church can be united in their complacency. So we've got to learn to distinguish between the two. I made a a list here. We have to go through it quickly, but... This is the difference between good unity and bad unity. And, and to, to look now, I see some of you with your Bibles open, and that's a good thing. That's the only thing that will change your life besides the Lordship of Christ, are reading and hearing and following his instructions. But now you've got to turn in your Bible to two places simultaneously. You want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We're going to look at the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at the church at Corinth. First of all, good unity is spirit-led. I understand within the churches of Christ that for many years we backed away of any talk of the spirit because there was so much abuse of talk of the spirit and who he was and what he did. But I think we did that to our detriment. And fortunately, these days, I'm hearing more talk of the work of the Spirit. But we have to understand unity. Just as Jesus unified the tax collector and the zealot, will never happen if it's by our own efforts. Never. It is impossible. If you're sitting here this morning and you have an argument or a, a difficulty or disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ... You cannot be unified to them on your own efforts. You can't. You can try, but of your own efforts you will fall short. You need the power of the Spirit to overcome your own desires, to overcome your own sinfulness, and to overcome your own selfishness. Bad unity is man-made. We're going to force it. We're going to pretend. We're going to ignore that problems exist. Number two, a good church studies the Word Number, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not number two, but the second example. A bad unity is a church's milk only. We don't get in the word. We don't care about the word. We just want to fill out our handout. We just want to hear an amusing story and go home and do nothing. 
Now listen, I, I love that you're in your Bibles this morning, but you need to understand James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but be doers of the word. A church can even open their Bibles and follow along and not be unified. It's got to be led by the spirit. It's got to be grounded in the word. Number three, he pray, a good church prays boldly. A bad church prays blandly. Weak churches, nothing solid there, nothing challenging, nothing that you ever you ever hear a prayer prayed and you just get you just get challenged and convicted and led back to God in one prayer. I'm sad to say those prayers are in the minority in the church these days. We need to hear some powerful, sincere, bold prayers. Men, when you get up to lead a prayer, you ought to take that seriously. You ought to be thinking about it the whole week. You ought to write it down. You ought to work through it. You ought to think about the scriptures. You ought not to just get up and repeat something, pray that you've heard, heard, heard prayed a thousand times before. You've got to pray it as you believe it, as God calls you to it. Don't just pray blandly. A good church is faithful. Faithful, meaning not only do they just believe the word, but they act on the word. A bad church a church that is bad in their unity is fearful. I love that Ryan said this is, uh, I'm sorry, get to the next point. A, a church of, of bad unity is fearful. Oh, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to the world? The world, look at the world, look at the world. It's coming apart all around us. What are we going to do? I know what we could do. We could huddle up all together, just stay the Christians, and just be all together, and just do, we just be in our little protective cocoon and just waiting for Jesus to come. That is heresy. That is not what the, uh, the church called the church, God called the church to be. Who are we to be at Northside? A ship? It's a safe port in a storm? That's where ships are safest, but that is not what ships were designed to do. Ships were designed to go out on the sea sail. A good church proclaims, this is what I was talking about with Ryan. I thank you so much, Ryan. I don't know where you are exactly. Thank you for telling us about, reminding us that we've got to be proclaimers. If you believe in Jesus, you better be talking about him. And I don't care how you do that, but he ought to be so part and parcel of your everyday language that people cannot deny that you are a believer. Well, they're just going to watch my good example. You know. A church's bad unity is strangely mute. A church that is powerful is devoted to one another. A church that has no unity is absolutely selfish. Only worried about what I want. Only thinking about what I need. A church that has good unity has awesome worship. A church with bad unity has awful worship. Our worship ought to energize us, invigorate us, encourage us, instruct us, and remind us about the God we serve. I understand the scriptures say decently and in order, but Jesus was not talking about making sure we had an adequate layout for every part and every minute of the worship. 
that has drawn us into something that God did not call us to be. And I'm not saying don't be decently and in order. I'm just saying focus, focus. If you come to worship and you're not energized and you're not reminded of the God that you claim to serve and worship, if the songs are just empty air, why come? If you don't pray when the, when the guy's leading the prayer, why come? If this is just a habit, if it's just a routine, it's just something that we do, why are you here? We must be unified and worship is part of what that which the early church did and it drew other people to Christ. But it also encouraged and built up the body for one another. And we must be about that. Number uh, last one, excited about the future. A church that's unified is excited about the possibilities A church that's bad in their unity is stuck in the past and can only live in what's been done. Now, I told you to turn two places, and I want you to read them with me now. The good side, of course, is the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. It says, this is Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread And to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe of the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I read through the church in Acts and I fall in love all over again with who God calls us to be as Christians individually and as a collective group. The church, the ecclesia, the called out. Now flip over in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, Paul here writing. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Read those passages and focus on the words. Maybe add to the list. But understand that not every church that called itself A church was doing exactly what God called them to do, even if they were unified. We must be unified around the right things, and that takes all of us working together. You cannot have the word unity without the letters U and I. So what do we do? How do we achieve and become the church of Jerusalem and not 
the church of Corinth. I give you four things. Unity takes effort, and here's what it requires. Number one, it takes humility. Philippians chapter 2 says of Christ that he considered himself nothing. Took on the very nature of servant and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Number two, unity requires gentleness. Number three, unity requires patience. I've heard it prayed before, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I've prayed that prayer before myself. But I need to repent of that. Peter says that God is not slow concerning his promise, but he is patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, I long for the day when Jesus returns, when that final glorious day, when we look up, we hear the sound of the trumpet, we see a glorious celestial host that we have never before seen on earth, that the, the very moment of which will strike all the ardent atheists and unbelievers in our culture absolutely mute. And I think it will us too as well. It will make every tongue begin to confess, every knee bow to the glory of God the Father. And sometimes I long for that day quicker than it occurs. But I do wonder, I do ask Why does it take so long? Ever ask yourself, why is Jesus taking so long? Why doesn't he return? I'm ready for it. I'm tired of this old world. I'm ready to go home. I'm tired of struggling with sin. I'm tired of watching people fall to sin. I'm ready to go home. Why does Jesus tarry? Because he is not slow. He is patient. Think for just a minute about the person that you know that is not yet a saved believer in Jesus Christ. And that moment of day when Jesus returns will be a day of absolute dread and fear for them. They will fear for their lives. They will be angry at you if you have not spoken to them about Jesus, their Savior, their only hope in eternity. And you know why Jesus tarries? Jesus tarries for them. If we're going to have unity, we have to be patient not only with our lost fellow brothers and sisters, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, unity requires love. I told you before, I think there were three things that drew people to Jesus. It was the miracles. It was authority with which he taught. And it was the unity that he had among his disciples. We do not have the first two today. I know some will tell you we have the ability to do miracles, but real, honest-to-goodness miracles could not be done and are not done today. I'd love to say we teach with authority, but we really lack in compared to what Jesus and how Jesus taught So the only thing that remains that will draw people to Christ is the unity which we show to one another. The love which we have. 1 Corinthians 13, 
you know it. It's the famous chapter on love read at weddings. It's really not about that kind of love. It's about spiritual love. The greatest spiritual gift ever given man is the ability to love. Is patient, is kind, it suffers long, and so forth. What does Paul say at the end of the chapter? He said, where their tongues, they will be ceased. Where their miracles, it will pass away. The knowledge will be no longer. But the greatest gift that we've ever had, that Jesus shared with everyone who followed him, is the love of Christ. That's why we must make every effort. And please don't think that's just talking about human effort. It must be a spirit-led effort to work. For, unit, for the body to work, we must be unified. For unity to happen, we must always be diligent. Which leads us to our next point. Unity, after all that's said and done, after all the, the heartache that we've had, all the times at the altar that we've been to, all the humbling that we've done, all the times that we've put one another above ourselves, Paul says it will be worth it. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow into him to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So how do we do it? How do we do, how do we achieve that which we are called to. I leave you with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Again, this will not be on the PowerPoint. And I hope that it's sinking deeply into your heart. Ephesians chapter 4, 2 through 6. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Three bees and one bear. Three ways to do it. Three simple attitudes. First, be humble. Be willing to think of yourself less. Number two, be gentle. There are some people who are very truthful, but who are absolute jerks. And... Um, if you speak the truth, but you do not speak it gently and in a loving way, you will lose the message you have intended to communicate. Number three, be patient, as Christ is patient with you. And number four, bear with one another in love. And that includes, by the way, bearing with the bears. There are a few bears, even sadly within the body of Christ. But we must bear with them at their worst because Jesus has bared with us at our worst. So here is my bear challenge for you. You ready? Now, this is not something for you to fill in. I guess you could if you wanted to. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, be go, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then, come and offer your gift. We were taking communion this morning. Tyler was asking... Um, about communion. And I said, we, we do this. He asked, can a non-Christian take of communion? And, and very briefly, without too much explanation, I said, probably not. Because a person who didn't believe in Christ would have no cause to remember Christ. But I want to challenge us, who most of whom in here are believers. I don't think you should take communion... If you don't have full community with your brother or sister in Christ, this is what Christ calls us to. He said, leave your gift at the altar. We don't worship under that ceremony anymore. He's making the point there that worship is absolutely important to God. But if we cannot do so in a unified sense, leave your gift. Leave it. Don't worry about that. Go across the aisle, go across the temple, and find the one with whom you disagree and make it right and have peace with your brother. Then, come make peace with God. You have against something against someone this morning, you have a responsibility to make it right. If you want to be a part of the community of Christ and to share in the communion and remembrance. Now turn to Matthew's same chapter, chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, <clears throat> what reward will you get? Are you not are not even the tax collectors doing so? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Second part of the challenge is to love and pray for your enemies. Enemies may be at work. Enemies may be within your own household. Enemies halfway around the world beheading fellow Christians. We have a challenge to love one another and to called to be unified under Christ. If you do not know Christ, I cannot think of any better way to end this message this morning than by to call you to know him. But if you know Christ, if you know Christ, and you haven't been unified with your brother or sister in Christ, you need to repent. If you know Christ and you haven't forgiven someone who's done you wrong, you need to repent. If we can help you with repenting, if we can help you bringing you to Christ, please come as we stand and sing.